I'm excited about the series we are doing because we are getting into the Bible and we are, I've been enjoying, I've enjoyed the last two sermons that uh, Jason has preached and we have looked at the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, you know, and we have also looked at the historical books and uh, it's amazing what you get out of books like that. And today we're lo- looking at wisdom literature. Excited? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you ought to be. It's the word of God. <laughs> so when we talk about wisdom literature, we are talking about Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. I know people get confused. It's Songs of Solomon? Or, you know, but it's Song of Solomon. And we'll talk about the title a little later. So before we get into the crux of these books and what they contain, what they're all about, I just want to talk about their packaging, which is poetry. That's the common denominator we have. These are poetic books. Of course, there's a little bit of, of uh, prose, you know, which is just ordinary language. As we, uh, as we have it, I'm talking in prose right now. It's not in poetry. But poetry is written or spoken language in which the expression of feelings and ideas is given intensity by the use of distinctive style and rhythm. How many are familiar with poetry? Okay, it's, we don't use it a lot because... You know, it's, you have to think about it. But don't let, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to pray because I need God's help. Hey, God help me to preach. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to stand in your presence to receive from you. We realize that church is about you. Church is yours, O God, and we have come to receive from you because you are our God, you are our Lord, and we want to hear what you have to say. God, help us to understand what to do with this type of literature, and may we see you as the main character in everything, O God. We give you all the glory, and we thank you in advance for what you have for us at this table. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about poetry. When God speaks in poetry, he's communicating his feelings or his heart from his heart to your heart. Think about that for a while. In other words, when you read poetry, you should be asking the question, what is God feeling? What is How does he feel about this thing that he's talking about in the text? So we should look for how God is feeling. Now, poetry is not natural speech. I don't go to my wife and talk to her in poetry. Behold, thine hair is flying so cool as the breeze is blowing through the house, as the window openeth, and then the breeze of the sea comes from beach, Long Beach. Is it Long Beach? I can't do that because that is not normal. In a sense, poetry is 
artificial. It, but artificial doesn't mean that it is fake. It just means that somebody has taken time to think seriously about the words they want to say. And God respects that when we think about it before we say it. Because sometimes it's just random and it's not cool. It indicates to God that we care about what we're going to say. So, it's not natural speech. Not one has to think carefully before they say it. But why does God use it? Why? Why use poetry? First thing is that it has a much deeper appeal to people. Therefore, it is likely to have a greater impact on people. When you hear it, when it hits you. The second thing is that it reaches the parts that normal speech or prose cannot reach. That's why we have poetry in greeting cards, for example. By the way, you should check these notes on, on you version. It's a whole bunch. It's nothing compared to what I'm, to, you know, there's a lot more that you'll get from there. Anyway, it reaches the parts that prose cannot reach. That's why we find it in greeting cards. I found a whole bunch of cards before we, 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 we moved to Cape Town. That Some letters that I wrote to Naomi 14 years ago. Behold, I didn't know. Well, by the way, behold is my punchline. I just love the word because it sounds so spiritual, you know. Just behold, you know. Anyway. So, I found some letters and I was thinking about it. I mean, how did I come up with all this stuff? Then I realized that I must have spent hours and hours trying to impress the girl because I wanted her heart. So, you see how it works, huh? I worked hard, yo. The other thing is that poetry goes deeper into the will. That part of you that makes decisions. It is able to provoke a response by writing on your heart, by painting pictures that provoke a response out of you. And when pictures are painted, you get challenged. When you're challenged, your belief is challenged, and it alters your behavior. And when behavior is changed, it cultivates fresh habits. When habits are changed, your lifestyle is changing. See, that's why God uses poetry. Having talked about poetry, now let's talk about wisdom literature, which is the main thing. We talk about the, we've talked about the packaging. Wisdom literature is packaged in poetry. Now let's talk about the content. So we're talking about Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. See, these books, they give counsel and advice and commentary for life and human existence. That is what you will find in these books. They help us navigate through life, consider the right things that we need to consider, and just go through life the right way. Now, they try to answer the question, what is the best thing to do in this particular situation? And it, it cannot be, it's not just one situation. So right now, I have to think about the right thing to do in this situation I'm 
preaching to you. I'm trying to communicate something to you. What is the right thing to do? I have to speak well. I have to be emphatic. That is wise. And when you find yourself in a situation, it's very important to ask yourself the question, what is the right thing to do now? Because if people really stopped, that's what I think. If people really stopped at every, every time that they, had, they, they, they were required to make serious decisions and they stopped for a moment and just asked the question, what is the right thing to do? I believe people would avoid a lot of regret because this question is key to avoiding regret in life. What is the best thing to do now? Should I marry Priscilla or Mariska? Those are serious names, eh? (laughs) Yeah. You know, anyway. There are two ways to get wisdom. One is to learn from others. To find out, oh sorry, the first one is to find out for yourself, which I'm calling live and learn. I call it the school of experience. You experience it yourself. The second one is to learn from others. Look and learn. You just observe. And I call that the school of example. When parents tell a child, you don't need to do that. You should not do that because it's bad for you. That child will be wise to take their advice and do what they, what they, what they are asking the child to do. Now, here's the thing. Not everything in wisdom literature is doctrine. It is, they are not commands. They are general conclusions on life. They are general observations on life. And they are there for consideration. See, the Bible honestly records how people wrestled through different situations and wrestled with the wrong ideas until they arrived at the right conclusions at all. I missed it all along. This is the thing I should have done in the first place. I have a little philosophy. I say it's better to cut once than to cut. It's better to wait and cut once, measure 10 times and cut once, than to cut 10 pieces wrong. (laughs) That's just my little proverb. Meaning that I have to go through and test and test and test before I make the final thing. And you can use that. I won't accuse you of plagiarism. You know, better to measure 10 times and cut once than to cut 10 pieces wrong. That's wisdom. But it can't apply to every situation in life. Sometimes you need to hurry up and cut quickly because... That occasion demands that you do that. So wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the moment. So not everything in wisdom literature is doctrine. For example, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 28. It says, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand but not one upright woman among them all. How many agree with that statement? Show your hand. If you agree with that statement, 
At least there is one man there. Is that? <laughs> well, that's a boy you can understand. But you can't preach that as God's word to all people in all places at, all, at any time. See, that was true for the man who said it, Solomon, because he had 700 wives. That means 700 mothers-in-law. And then he had 300 side chicks. So you can imagine that would certainly be your attitude if you had that number of women. That's your conclusion. None of them can be trusted because you've never devoted your full attention to the one. You see? That is your conclusion. Now, wisdom literature is telling you how men wrestled. I'm reiterating that because that's very important. How men wrestled with their problems and issues. And they honestly, they honestly report how they felt, how they went through the process. But we must be careful not to pass it on as God's word for all times and all people anywhere. We have to be discerning. So, the big statement I'm making there is that wisdom is general. It is never particular. Promises are, but we'll talk about that later. Tease it out as we go. So, the first book we're going to talk about is Job, the book of Job. Interesting book. It is known to be the oldest book in the Bible. And it paints a social picture of the times of the patriarchs like Abraham or Enoch and other patriarchs that we know like Noah around that time. That is the only place we can, we can, we can put Job because he doesn't mention the covenant at Sinai, for example, or the crossing of the Red Sea or the laws, which is a big deal in the Bible. You know, he doesn't, the book doesn't mention any of that. So, historians and scholars have actually concluded that the best place to put Job is way before Moses, before at least during, maybe during the time of Abraham. That's when Job must have existed. And it's a factual story. It's dramatic for a reason because it's poetry. Remember, the feelings are intensified in poetry. You know? They're intensified. So, The book seeks to answer some of life's questions like, why are we here? Where did life come from? There's a whole list of of questions. Why is pain and suffering unfairly experienced in this world? Why do bad people seem to get away with their crimes, but good people suffer for their crimes, for the bad people's crimes, you know? And if there's a God, why does he allow suffering and pain in the world? Now, here's the thing. I want you to follow me closely. Wisdom is general. Proverbs are general. And I want to give you this proverb that I I just made up. Because you can make up proverbs, right? If you live a bad life, you will suffer for it. How many agree? Come on. If you live a bad life, what's the natural consequence? You will suffer for it. Right? You will suffer. It's not a prophecy. It's a proverb. (laughs) Now, look. This is a general conclusion and observation 
based on my limited knowledge and understanding of life. But the problem comes in when somebody comes along and says that a proverb is true at all times. That can be a serious problem. And the proverb that lies behind the whole book of Job is this. If you sin, you suffer. And if that is always true, then if you suffer, then you must have sinned. You see? Do you, do you see that? And you see a rigid thinker who wants to turn Proverbs into some rigid idea would say to somebody suffering that they have sinned. And if you do that, you will hurt people deeply. Because in life, there are exceptions to the rule. And Job is actually dealing with exceptions in life. You know? And in this case, when the friends came to Job and said, well, we'll get into the story. We we can't get into the story, really. But we'll talk about that a little later. I'm getting ahead of myself. But when the friends came to Job, they said he had sinned. But Job knew his heart and he knew his God. And he was okay. He was doing everything right. But the friends insisted that he needed to repent, including his wife. And she's called foolish because she wasn't considerate when trying to help the husband. So you see, it's a proverb. Let me throw out one proverb again. If you are not healed, you do not have faith. How many have heard that? You heard of that? (laughs) But that's not always true. I know people that have prayed and trusted God to heal them and they're following scripture and they know God, they worship God. Lovely people, but they die of cancer. But we can't turn a proverb or a general conclusion into an absolute truth that applies to all people anywhere in the world. That is wrong. Because you will hurt people. And you don't want to be that. All the nice people at View Church Milneton say, yes. Oh, yeah, so you're nice, you see? Now, here's the thing. Job was a righteous man. The key to understanding Job's book is that there is a wager, a bet, between Satan and God. And the key is you have to understand that there was a council in heaven where God and angels and Satan met together. God is addressing his angels and boom, behold, Satan is in the place as well. And God asks him, where have you come from, Satan? And he said, well, I've been roaming around the earth and I've just been, you know, looking at people and observing life and all that. And then God brags about one of his children and he says, did you notice my servant Job? And they will say, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, he's blessed. And he loves you and he serves you. But the only reason he does that is because you have blessed him so much. If you took away all the blessings, he will curse you. And, and, you know, God likes that game. And he says, okay, <laughs> you think you're right. Okay, I'll take away everything. 
but I'll allow you to touch his stuff, but don't kill him. And you see, God is sovereign and he can do that. So he allowed the devil to bring calamity on Job. And Job was tested. He was tested and tested and tested. And, and you have to understand what's happening. There's a council in heaven, but there's also a council on earth where his friends come. And by council, I simply mean a meeting where people are discussing issues. So when Job went down and down and down, friends came to confront him. And because they believed the proverb to have been true at all times, they thought that Job had sinned. And they were wrong. And if you read the book of Job to the very end, you find that God says that the friends were wrong and Job was right. You see, that's why you have to read. Be careful what you read because you might read a very cool thing, but it's wrong because the one who said it didn't know exactly what was going on, the full circumstances that were taking place at that particular time. So the friends of Job spoke very insightful things like total depravity that all have sinned. They understood that, that every human being, no one can claim that we have sinned. So Job, you must have sinned, but you see, That is true and that is right because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But at this particular time, it wasn't wise for them to conclude that Job had sinned. You see, that's why Job has been included in wisdom literature. So, here's the thing. God doesn't tell Job in the end that this was the plan, that he was testing him. The book just ends without Job not having known, without Job having known that actually God was testing him and actually God was the hero because he passed with flying colors, you know? But God doesn't let him know that it was a bet and that he was just being tested. You see, God is sovereign. He can choose to do with us as he pleases. And the big thing that I want to propose to you, that I want to suggest to you, is this, that God knows something we don't know. When you see a person suffering and they are sick and they have prayed and we've held hands and interceded on their behalf, but they're still sick and they actually eventually die, let's not beat ourselves. Let's not say they, don't, they lack faith. God knows something we don't know. And he can do as he pleases because he's God. Amen? And I'll leave it there for Job. I'll let you chew on the bones, you know. It's good for you to just go back and think about these things. And then we move to the book of Psalms. There's uh, a lot to talk about, but we'll try and minimize it. Psalms are a combination of lyrics. They're songs that People sang, especially David. He's one of the prominent writers of the songs, but there's others. And these are so relevant. It's it's amazing how they are still relevant in this day when they were written thousands of years ago, you know, but they still apply to us today. And they were put together thoughtfully. It's poetry, meaning that people really thought through what they were going to say before they said it. And Psalms are, uh, they model to us how we should pray in different circumstances. This was the hymn book of Israel. This is the book that tells us how they 
prayed, how they had church, for example, in that time, you know. And in a world that prides itself in intellectual property, you can be accused of plagiarism for taking something that you don't reference. But you know what? You can just go to the book of Psalms and take a psalm and read it, make it your own. Nobody will come and accuse you of having had, you know, plagiarized. Isn't that good? So it's your book. It's my book. And it's very easy to find in the, in the Bible. You just open in the middle, you'll find Psalms right there. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to quickly talk about the types of psalms. There are please psalms, sorry psalms, and thank you psalms. These are the three words that we should get used to saying. Please, sorry, and thank you to God. Very important. Let's talk about the please psalms. These are lamentations. <laughs> you cry before God because you are hurt. These are psalms that People prayed when things were bad. Somebody got a promotion when it was supposed to be you. You're the one with the degree. They got a diploma or a craft and they get promoted. And you've been waiting. You can take a psalm and pray to God. Because it's okay to cry before God. It's okay to be real with him. He created this with, with, with feelings. And we need to go to him and just pour out our hearts. But don't, don't keep dropping the F-bombs and just swearing all the time. No, no, no. It's God, hey. But you are free to express how you feel. There are also sorry psalms. You say sorry. Simple, straightforward. There are also thank you psalms. When something is good, it's happening, things are going good. Even in bad times, you can say, Lord, I thank you because I know that you're in control. So let's move on. There are special categories like the royal psalms, the messianic psalms, the wisdom psalms. The wisdom psalms are very important because they talk about the conduct of life and contradictions. The conduct of life, Psalm 1 is a good example because it talks about blessed is a man. I I wanted to say blessed, but I I looked at Jason, you know, a twinkle in his eye. He wasn't going to allow me to say blessed. Blessed is a man who does not walk. Oh, no. Is it, is it right? Who does not walk, stand, or sit in the seat of wicked people? Have you seen the, the progression? There's walking, and they standing, and then sitting. It's a sequence. It's a progression. That's how you get trapped progressively, slowly, to a place where you begin to sit in a wrong place, and that is not cool. Contradictions. Sometimes you just, you just look at all the people succeeding that are not doing the things of God. They're not living right, but they're succeeding. They're making major progress in areas that you're struggling as a believer. You're tithing and doing all kinds of things. And you look at them and you think, God, this is not fair. David went through that. But he says one thing that is important in, in Psalm 73. He says, Until I went to the house, I was disoriented, disappointed, confused, until I went to the house of God. That's when I found out that actually I'm in a better place without all the stuff that I want. And it's important to actually think about some of these things. There's also a type of Psalms that is quite interesting because it talks about breaking people's teeth and crushing their babies. It's very, very gory, very, you know, 
graphic when you think about these sounds because it's poetry and it's intense and it talks about God putting judgment on all your enemies. Now you see, you have to understand something about these sounds. These guys were in a special covenant with God and the enemies, their enemies were God's enemies and it was impo- they, they were just enforcing the covenant when they prayed like that. You see? And the second thing is that they didn't understand eternity the way we understand it because we know that there will be resurrection, there will be judgment. They didn't know that. So let's cut them some slack. They were praying according to the level of knowledge. They were just praying, Lord, judge. Because that's how they knew. They thought judgment had, has to somehow take place in this life and not in eternity because they didn't know a thing about eternity. You see? So we should learn from them, but we should not take that practice and think that it is something we can do today. Then we move on to the books of Solomon. Solomon. (laughs) Now, these books of Solomon, they're very interesting because they start with Solomon asking God for help. Solomon becomes king and he asks one thing from God and he asks for wisdom. God was impressed you know, he was impressed in First Kings chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. God was impressed and he said, you know what? You've asked for wisdom. This is a good thing. I am going to give you everything else that you didn't ask for. But verse 14 is very important because there is a condition there. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David, your father, did, I will give you a long life. There is a condition, something, an obligation, something that Solomon needed to uphold, a responsibility. God blesses you, but you need to be responsible because the blessing can be lost if you violate the condition. And that's exactly what happened in Solomon's life, which is why I will talk about when he was young and when he was midlife and then when he was old. The book of Song. The Song of Solomon was written when he was a young man, looking out, wanting to, to, to find chicks. You know, when he was collecting those chicks. Is chicks a bad word? Well, you know, he had chicks. Because he said none of them were cool, right? That's what he said. At least I'm using his words, you know. And it happened that Solomon had a habit. He would go on holiday. And just to be a shepherd, just to have ordinary life when he was king. And he saw this woman. Her skin had tanned because of the sun. Her brothers had made her work. And she didn't even take care of her own work, right? So now you see, the prospects of marriage at that time, if if your skin was tanned, it's not like now where people go to the beach. Then you had to stay 12 months like Esther before marriage before somebody can notice you so the more you stay out of the sun the better the prospects you know you you increase the chances of being spotted you see but Solomon finds this one woman her skin is burnt from the sun and he actually realizes this is my girl but at this time you already had 60 queens and she's number 61 you see now I am convinced that when God talks about marriage, it is to one person, and there is always one person that he means for each one of us to have. 
Of course, there are exceptions. Like there are some people who just won't get married. That's how God has given them the grace to go through like, like Paul. You know, it was a gift. It was a grace. But when God talks about marriage, he's talking about one person, one woman, and there's a right person for everyone. If you wait, this is the person that he should have waited for. But he didn't, you see. Now, why should we read this book? It's just a romance. There's no mention about God. There's, there's no mention of covenant. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It's just feelings, how he feels. How, what do we make of this book? The first thing I want to say is that it's not an allegory. An allegory is a fictional story that represents something. You know, you get the notes. In other words, things are not as they seem. There is something behind everything you see. If I'm talking about apples, they are not apples. They are something, a hidden meaning, you know. But the problem with that approach is that everyone will have a different conclusion when they, you know, try to make something of the book. So I choose not to treat it as an allegory. I would rather treat it as an affirmation of human love. In this book, God is saying, I created human beings and made it possible for them to fall in love. And I am the mastermind behind human relationships. That's what he's saying. And, you know, Satan has, has, has lied to people that sex is wrong. You know, God, God is against sex and therefore, you know, uh, uh, you, know you just rebel against God, then do your thing and have your own truth. But that's a lie because God is for sex. It's just that he designed it to be in a marriage institution where everybody, both parties say, I do, and it's a covenant. That's what we were taught, very insightful, yesterday. So it's an affirmation. God is saying, I'm the one who created it, and I love it, and there it is. The other thing it is is that it's an analogy an analogy is a fact that is like another fact. Just like Jesus, he will start from things that people didn't know, things that people were familiar with, sorry, and he will talk about things that he was, they were familiar with, you see? And that is important because if it's an analogy, then it's talking about something deeper than what we can understand. It's talking about, it's a love story of how God came for us. And he sought us out in order for us to be related to him. In other words, love between a man and a woman is like the love between God and his people. And whenever Israel rebelled against God, they were called adulterous. Because that's how the relationship, those are the terms of the relationship, you know. But what do we make of that? At the heart of the Christian faith is a personal relationship between God and his people. And it is important for you to understand that if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, then you have missed it somehow. And you need to get back. So that's, what, that's the picture that this book is trying to give us. When you look at the New Testament... The church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband. That is the same picture that we see in here. Just like humans are related, the church is related to Jesus Christ. So Proverbs, let's talk about Proverbs. 
Let's talk about Proverbs. It is a book of Proverbs. Proverbs, not promises. Remember, Proverbs is wisdom and wisdom is general. It's never particular. And in the Proverbs, you recognize many different people when you look at them. The fool, the prostitute, and all the other people that are mentioned in the book of Proverbs. But the key to understanding Proverbs is to see yourself. Where am I in these Proverbs? Where do I stand? You can laugh. Some of them are very funny, you know. But the key to understanding it is to ask yourself, where am I? See, reading the Bible will not make you clever. Rich or famous or popular. Popular and famous, is it the same? Behold. It is there to make you wise. If you're, when you are clever, you can, you, when you're clever, you can be rich. Make a lot of money because you're clever. But if you are wise, you make the most of life. And that's a better deal. So, desire wisdom. Solomon brought wisdom into a context of Yahweh, God. So we can accumulate wisdom from everywhere else, but it's important to bring it into the context of Yahweh. So quickly, three things about Proverbs. It is proverbial. (laughs) These are general assertions about life. They are not commands. We cannot teach them as commands, as if God says, spare the road, spoil the child. It's not a command. It's just telling you that there is this that you can do. But it doesn't have to be. Do you, do you get that? Like if you spare the road, then every child will go to hell. It's not, it doesn't mean that. It's just telling you that you can use the most extreme means of uh, uh, discipline in a loving way if necessary. But not always. Because people are different. You know? The other thing is that um, proverbs are poetry, meaning that the message has been intensified and it's meant to cause you to feel something when you read it. It's supposed to impact you. And the third thing is that it is patriarchal. You can get the notes in uh, your version. It's a setting where a parent is teaching the child Actually, two parents, a mother and a father, teaching their son, a royal son who's yet to inherit the throne. And they're teaching them how to go about in life. And one quick thing about Proverbs is that they are random. There's no subject. Like, you can't find a particular subject put in one place and all that. You actually find them all over the place because it's picturing to us that life is random. And things will come unexpectedly and you need to be ready to be wise in every uh, situation. Lastly, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It is a book of the mind. And you find a wide range of subjects. It's, at this time, Solomon is depressed. It is a book of a depressed man and he's saying, meaningless, meaningless. He finds life to be meaningless. And there are so many things that he talks about, like fatalism. Whatever happens is meant to be. It happens. doesn't matter. Existentialism. My life is a choice. Like, it's my life. It's my choice. I can choose what I want. You know, there's chauvinism. Yeah? Male supremacy. It's there. 
hedonism, pursuit of pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry. It's all there in Ecclesiastes. There is cynicism, believing the worst out of people. You don't just believe that the best can come out of people. There is also pessimism, where you're just negative. You're just negative. You know, you don't expect anything positive. It's better to be optimistic, but at this time, you find that Solomon, more than half the time, he was actually very pessimistic. Now, Solomon is disappointed, is disillusioned, and he's hopeless at this time. Let's look at the title. The title is Ecclesiastes. It's in Hebrew, it's Kohelet. It means a teacher or a philosopher or a lecturer or speaker or somebody who presides uh, over a debate. And that's the meaning I actually extracted for this particular purpose. One who presides over a debate. And the debate is going on in his mind. And the motion of the, the debate is life is worth living. But he can't... He, he, he can't conclude, he can't decide whether his life has been worth living because he had an opportunity to do great things, but he messed it up. Now, let's have a look at the negative side of the debate. He was a king and he got great power. He was wealthy. If money could buy it, he could buy it. And his list of interests is amazing. He tried science. He tried arts. He tried entertainment. He tried business. He tried pleasure. <laughs> the usual forms, you know, food, wine, and women. <laughs> he tried it all. <laughs> and he tried philosophy. He read a lot of books. But that didn't satisfy him. In the end, he found that it was all pointless. But can we explain the failure to make sense of his life? Yes, we can. He was limited in two ways. Firstly, everything he saw was under the sun. Life on earth. And whenever he went on and observed people living on earth and his life on earth, he, was, he went down, 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 and he was depressed. The second thing is that he didn't have a clear understanding, just like other Old Testament believers, of eternity. Because eternity, actually, if you live in light of eternity, you actually have, you are mindful of what you do because you know they matter to God. And God will judge every word and every action. But he didn't have that. He was limited. You see, we need a higher perspective on life. And we need God. Let's look at the positive side, which I'll end with. The positive side to his debate is that Every time he brought God into his debate, into his thinking, he's optimistic. And the two chapters where he's very optimistic is chapter 3 and chapter 12. There are other places, of course, but in chapter 3 he's saying there is time for everything. It is God who orders times and seasons. And when you come to that place where you understand that nothing just happens in your life... You will be at peace even when things are going wrong because you know he's in control, right? God holds our times and he orders our seasons and he knows everything and we need to trust him. In chapter 12, he's saying, remember the Lord and fear the Lord. 
This is the conclusion of, of the matter. This is how he concluded it. It is better for a man who is alive today to remember the Lord and to fear the Lord. Solomon had forgotten about God at some point because of women mostly. You know, I'm not saying but women are bad. You're wonderful. You're very wonderful. But his choice of women, and it, it put him at a bad place where he, he did not make the most of his own life. Remember, wisdom is t- telling us how people wrestled with different ideas, the wrong ideas, until they arrived at the right ones. Would you please stand to your feet?